0: You can be seated. And if you'll take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16. And we're going to go ahead and read the entire passage. And then we'll come back and make some comments as we continue on our study of the threefold offices of Christ that of prophet, priest, priest, and king. 1 Samuel chapter 16 verse 1. Now remember this is 1 Samuel 16 comes right after 1 Samuel 15, all right? I can count. <laughs> and we have in 1 Samuel 15 the rejection of Saul as king by God. And so hot on the heels of that, in fact, the end of chapter 15 ends with the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. And so verse chapter 16 comes in, And the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go if Saul hears that he will kill me? And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but Yahweh the Lord looks where? On the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one, Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send Forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it, and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well, and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, who is skilled in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence. And the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David your son who was with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David his son to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand, so Saul was refreshed and was well. And the harmful spirit departed from him. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank You for um, Your Word We thank you that it is true. We thank you, Father, that in your loving kindness and your magnificent care for your people, you provide for us, you reveal to us who you are and how you deal with your people. And Father, it is amazing for us to stand back and to see how you keep your promises in how you work here with David and Saul. Father, may we learn from this story. Father, may we seek to be encouraged and to live a life based upon the principles that we glean from this passage. But also, Father, may we not miss that you had promised to send a king And you keep that promise as you raised up David to be king. Father, work in our midst, Lord, as we see who David is. Father, help us to recognize that he is only showing us a glimpse. He is only a type of the true king, King Jesus. Father, work in our midst by your spirit. We pray this all in Christ's name, pleading his blood. Amen. So we are looking at the kingly office. And it's been a couple weeks since we've been back in this study. We were off for a couple Sundays. And the last time we were together, we discussed how Saul was rejected as king. And really, we discussed the entire, um, the entire circumstances surrounding Saul's coming to be king we talked about how at the end of the time of the judges there was a indictment upon the people of Israel every man did that which was right in his own eyes and then there was also a recognition that there was no king in Israel in those days now again was there anything necessarily wrong with the desire for a king no no God had prophesied that Judah would have the scepter, that there would be a king that would come from Judah. And so the king itself, the king himself, that that royal line was not what was wrong. Rather, it was Israel seeking a king of their own choice and wanting a king so that they could be like the nations around them. And so What we find is that at the end of the book of Judges and in the beginning of the book of Samuel, Israel wants a king, not a king of God's choosing, but a king of their own choosing. Not a king that will show them and lead them in the things of God, but rather a king that will make them like the nations around them. Again, just just to quickly review, I think there is a reminder to us there that we can seek things that God has has desired for us to seek, we can seek things that God has given us, but we can seek them in ways in which we deny God himself. We need to be careful in the way in which we go about what God has called us to do, that we do it as God has called us to do it, not in our own strength. Well, we find in 1 Samuel 15 that God rejects Saul as king in fact, one of the things that is interesting when God tells, Israel, tells Samuel to go ahead and anoint Saul, he tells Samuel, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me as king. And what we find here in 1 Samuel 15, after Saul disobeys the Lord and, and doesn't destroy the enemies of Israel completely as he was commanded to do, God rejects Saul as king. And so we come to 1 Samuel 16, and there is a great sense, if you're reading through the narrative, of what, what's going to happen next. What, what will happen in Israel's history, and what's when we begin to see the Davidic dynasty. And really, the house of David becomes the primary house through which God chooses to save humanity. One of the things that we see as we've sort of traced these pro, these offices of prophet, priest, and king, is that God chooses to do this through families. He chose to save the world through, after the flood, through whose family? Noah's family. And then after Noah's family and and the, the world population begins to grow again, he chooses out Abram and says from his family. And now we come to this point and there's another family that's going to be instrumental in God's providing redemption and that is David's family there is a bringing up of the Davidic dynasty and so what we see first of all about this Davidic dynasty is that David himself is a king of God's choosing not a king of Israel's choosing now What we see first of all is that after God had rejected Israel's choice in Saul because of his rebellion and disobedience to God, God still sought to bless Israel. Now, this is remarkable to me. Israel had rejected God as their king. That's God's indictment upon what they had done. Israel had continued to follow their own ways. Israel had said, We can do it ourselves, we can set up the government ourselves. We don't need the Lord. And so God gives them what they want. He gives them Saul, and Saul does all the things that God said he was going to do. He takes their their men, puts them and conscribes them into uh, um, service, presses them into service in the army. There's wars he takes and taxes them. I mean, there's all sorts of everything that we can see as an issue with Saul. But what does God do when He rejects Saul as king? He doesn't turn and give Israel over to destruction. I mean, could we have blamed Him for doing that? No. Rather than treating Israel as they deserved, He treats them with grace. This is such a reminder to us that one of the things that becomes abundantly clear, particularly as we do what we call biblical surveys, which is we're taking this topic of the, of the offices of Christ, and as we survey these things, as we survey all of the offices, the, prophet, the prophetic office, the priestly office, and now the kingly office, there's one thing that becomes abundantly clear, and that is that God is long-suffering to His people. He does not instantly condemn them. Over and over again, Israel rejects Yahweh as their prophet, priest, and king. Over and over again, they go against His commandments. And over and over again, God is patient with them. God continues to bless His stubborn people. Praise the Lord He does that, right? I don't know about you, but I can be pretty stubborn too. In fact, the Bible tells us that the things that are recorded for us about Israel are given to us as examples. And one of the things that they show us is how much we are like Israel. It's easy for us to be hard on Israel and and to say, well, my goodness, God split the sea, split the Red Sea open for you. How are you going to then complain once you get on the other side of the Red Sea? And then we who have been saved from our sins in Jesus Christ get upset because it's been pretty hot lately. Our God is a God who, as the psalmist says in Psalm 103, 8-10, is merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger. And He is abounding in steadfast love. He will not always child, chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. And then verse 10 is so hopeful. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. That's demonstrated here in 1 Samuel 16. As Israel has rejected God as king, God continues to bless Israel by choosing another king. And so what we find is God commands Samuel to anoint A new king. In rejecting Saul, God promises that the next king of Israel will be one according to God's own heart. This is important for us to keep in mind that David is described as a man after God's own heart. But that actually likely isn't what is being said here in 1 Samuel 13. In 1 Samuel 13, God has said, that Saul's kingdom will not continue, that God has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. This term, a man after God's own heart, is actually, I think, there's, there's a double meaning that's brought about here. Both that David is going to be a king who seeks to align his life with the heart of God. He's going to be a king who seeks to live to please the Lord in all things. But there's also the idea here that the king who is being chosen is a king not after Israel's heart, but according to God's heart. In other words, God makes the choice, not Israel. That's what we see here. Of course, David, we know, will live his life in such a way that he seeks to please the Lord in all things. But ultimately, it is God's desire that David be king, not Israel's desire. It is God as the one who is choosing David, not Israel choosing David. And this stands in clear contrast to what Israel had done with Saul. And so what does God do? Well, He sends Samuel to the house of Jesse in Bethlehem. Now, it's interesting that we see Bethlehem brought up here. We really don't know very much about Bethlehem up until this point in the biblical record. But we do know that if we were to go to the prophets, even after David, who was the most prominent king of Israel, had come from Bethlehem, Micah speaks of Bethlehem as the least of the tribes of Judah. This isn't a, 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 you know, this isn't like a, a big town that's known for and has a reputation for being rich and has a reputation for being powerful and has a reputation for having all sorts of commerce. This was, this was the McDonald of Israel, right? This was small town Israel. I almost said small town USA, but it was small town USA. Right? This was small, small area. Not a great city. And in fact, this is showing the contrast between what God is choosing and what Israel is choosing. And particularly later on in this passage, God's going to make it abundantly clear. He's going to say, look, you as man, as man and men, where do you look? On the outward appearance. And so as part of that is looking at, well, what type of family does this king come from? Saul came from a prominent family in a prominently powerful and likely rich city. He came from Gibeah. He was a Benjaminite. And if we remember, the, 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 the town of Gibeah was responsible for absolutely terrible atrocities at the end of the book of Judges. But nonetheless, it was likely a reputable city, a city that had impact. We also know that Saul was from a wealthy family. What is the family life of David? Well, I mean, he has eight sons. And any of you who have children know that it ain't cheap to raise children, right? So there likely was some blessings that, that Jesse had, but he wasn't a prominently wealthy man. He wasn't even an elder in the city. We see in First Samuel 16, Samuel comes to, the, uh, the, to, to Bethlehem, Of course, the first thing the elders are concerned about is, oh boy, what do we do? (laughs) Like, is he coming in peace, or is God going to judge us for something? And he comes in peace, and then then we say, let's get Jesse, because Jesse isn't even there among the elders. He's not even a prominent family, a prominent member of this small town. And when Samuel comes to Jesse's family, seven of Jesse's eight sons come before Samuel, and none of them are chosen by the Lord. Samuel sees the first son, Eliab. And again, we see Samuel's immediate response in verse 6 when he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Here's the eldest. He's got the prestige, he's got the power. He apparently has... um, is a man of significant stature and height. And remember, we, we talked a little bit about what was one of the things that made Saul stand out to Israel. He was a tall guy. And there may even be a, a bit of a hint here. What was one of the things that the Israelites were concerned about before they went into the promised land? They said that the land was filled with what? Giants. So a, again, the the desire to have Saul, as king, was to have a king that was like the nations around them. And so Samuel sees him. He saw that Saul was this sort of sort of buff, very dynamic character. And so he's like, well, Eliab sort of fits that bill. Maybe this is the guy. And then God says to him and says, no, this isn't the one. And he goes through Eliab. He goes through uh, Shama. Uh, he goes through Abinadab. And then the rest of the children are brought before Samuel, and God says, not any of these. And so, again, Samuel, who we we see the faith of Samuel in God's word here, all right? So all all the sons that were there come by, and he's like, well, none of these. And he's like, well, God sent me here, and he said it was going to be one of the sons of Jesse. So he turns to Jesse and says, don't you have another son and Jesse's like, well, yeah, we have the youngest, but he's just a shepherd. Now, we, we have this idea today, you know, I think, I think we can blame Thomas Kincaid for this to some extent, that, like, shepherds are just sort of on these rolling green pastures, and there's flowers everywhere, and, and they're just really enjoying life. Like, it's, it's the best thing to be a shepherd. You know, the work of a shepherd was considered one of the lowest jobs in Israel. Nobody wanted to take care of the sheep. They're stubborn. They don't listen to their shepherd. The shepherd has got to lay down his life, to protect, to protect them. It was a low job. It wasn't one of prestige. And so Jesse probably thought, well, surely God isn't going to choose David. I mean, look at what he does. He's a shepherd. And yet, when David comes before him, the Lord reveals his choice for the next king of Israel. David, as the youngest, is not considered by Samuel, was not considered by Jesse, relegated to the meanest employment, and yet that is the one whom God chooses to be king. And so, I want you you to realize the contrast that is being set up here between Saul and David. God chooses the least son of a family dwelling in one of the least prominent cities of Israel to be the next king of Israel. He doesn't come from a, he's not a part of Saul's family. He doesn't come from a prestigious family. He's not a priest. He's just from Bethlehem. And of course, Bethlehem just happens to be a part of what tribe? Judah. And remember the blessing that Jacob gave to Judah? The scepter will not depart from Judah. And so here we have this small town in this small tribe, and yet there is the one where God is keeping his promise of the king of his choosing. Truly, God's gaze looks at the heart rather than the outward appearance. God's wisdom is greater than the wisdom of men. I want to camp here for just a moment and talk a little bit about 1 Samuel sixteen seven. Look with me again. The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Now this is important for us to keep in mind. And I think it's important for us to recognize that this is not a sight that we have. Man Man sees the outward appearance. God sees the heart. I think sometimes we use that to sort of excuse outward sinful actions. But listen, what what does Jesus tell us to judge people and to judge particularly ourselves on? We talked about it this morning. False teachers, you'll know them by their what? Their fruits. We can't see the hearts. We can only see the actions and it is from and one of the points that Jesus makes there is a healthy tree produces healthy fruit. A rotten, disease tree produces rotten, diseased fruit. And so our actions are actually a way for us to evaluate what's going on in the heart. So let us not take this passage to say, well, I can't judge anybody because I don't know their heart. That's not what God calls us to. We need to judge righteous judgment. And we hear that judge not lest you be judged. The point that Jesus is making there is don't judge unless you're willing to be judged by the same standard by which you are judging. He's not saying don't judge at all. But we also have to recognize that God is going to act in ways that go counter to human wisdom. If you think about it, who, who would you want to be the leader of the nation? You'd want a strong, imposing figure. You'd want somebody that would cause the nation's armies against whom you're going into battle with to fear. You'd want a warrior. You'd want somebody who could command the respect and the attention of the armies. You would want somebody who was likely pretty good-looking because it's just easier for people to follow somebody that looks good. I mean, just being honest. He would want outward appearance to be the primary reason why you would choose somebody. And, you know, the reality is, back thousands of years ago in Israel, if we were to fast forward to today, are things any different? No. You know, if, if you want to get involved in, in politics, if you want to get involved in, in trying to, to lead something, you've got to be dynamic, you've got to look to the power of yourself, you, you've got to be the one who brings it, essentially. And God says, listen, I'm not going to act according to your standards. Notice what he says here. The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And then he goes through, and each of Jesse's sons are rejected, one after the other. What's interesting is, if we, as we look down a little bit further in chapter 16, when Saul is having to deal with this harmful spirit from the Lord, he asks so sort of his counsel, look, I need somebody to help me. And they said, well, let's get a, let's get a skillful musician in here. And someone says, you know, I, I know of somebody. There's this, there's this son of Jesse in Bethlehem, and he's very skillful in playing He's a man of valor, a man of war. He's prudent in His speech. He's a man of good presence. And then here's the key, and the Lord is what? With him. What we have to recognize is that true wisdom comes not by looking to men, but the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. That we need to recognize that fools will despise God's wisdom and instruction will go their own way. Paul gets a little bit more personal with it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He is contrasting the wisdom of the world with the wisdom of God in the gospel. In the church at Corinth, there were people who were attacking Paul's authority. They were saying he didn't have the right to say what he was saying. And essentially, they were elevating their human wisdom, which is what false teachers do. We talked about that this morning. They were elevating their human wisdom over the wisdom of God. And so God comes to them and he's like, wait a second, you just need to take a look in the mirror. Who did God choose to save? God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise, God chose what is weak in the world, to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. And then why does He do this? So that no human might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, because the wisdom of God is such that He chooses and looks not On the outward appearance. He does not act according to our preconceived notions. Because God chooses that which is foolish, you are in Christ Jesus. And He is the one who has become to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast what? In the Lord. Paul will go on to say, not many of you were wise by worldly standards. Not many of you were prominent. Not many of you had, were from the right families. Essentially, he goes on and says, look, God chose you. He chose what was foolish in the world. And at, at some point, we might be like, wait a second. That's not very nice to say about me, Paul, right? You're saying I'm foolish. Praise God that we're foolish. Because if we continue to seek the wisdom of this world, we would never turn to the glories of Christ. And So we need to recognize that this humbling fear of the Lord becomes that beginning of wisdom. God works in bringing salvation to men. He does not choose the wise or the mighty. He chooses the foolish to confound the wise. I think about this as it's, demonstrated in Martin Luther. You know, here here is Martin Luther, who's just a a monk in Wittenberg. He, He really wasn't trying to be anything major. But he recognized that the wisdom of the church, or of the world at that day, was wrong. Oh, there's these indulgences, and you can sort of pay ahead of time, to go out and sin. And he's like, this isn't right. This isn't the grace of God. The church shouldn't be fleecing the flock, which again, what did we look at this morning about false teachers? Their God is their what? Belly. They seek to exploit believers for their own gain. And so Luther, who was just, he was a smart guy, but he was just this monk in Wittenberg. He by God's grace, nails the 95 Thesis to the Wittenberg Chapel. He comes to a recognition recognition that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He preaches that message, and the Reformation spark is lit that burns throughout Europe. So that people turn from the sinful teachings of the Roman church and turn to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And all it was was a monk who was of no notoriety, who took down and stood before the kings of that day and age. Why? The wisdom of God is better and stronger than the wisdom of men. I think we need to recognize this in our day and age because the world constantly bombards us with what their ideal is. And it's, it's going to become even more and more apparent how far away we are from their wisdom. And they're going to hate the fact that we don't go along with their wisdom and their ideas. But all we have to do is go back to the Scriptures. Just look at David. It wasn't earthly human wisdom. It was God's wisdom that brought this about. So we see that Samuel calls to Jesse, go get, um, go get David. We're not sitting down until he comes here. I sort of like that little addition there. It's like, oh, you know, these other sons have passed before him. They're probably getting tired. I mean, who doesn't want to? It's like, all right, hurry up. Go get David so we can sit down. David comes and the Lord he comes and he's, he's somebody who is ruddy and beautiful and handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. And so Samuel takes the horn of oil and he pours it over David's head and anoints him. And then there's something so important that happens immediately. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. We see that David and this Davidic dynasty is established, first of all, because it is God's choice of David. But secondly, we see that David is a spirit-dependent king. After David is anointed king, we read that the spirit rushed upon him and that that spirit remained with David from that day Day forward. Why was it that David's house is established in Israel? It is because he was someone who depended on the Spirit of God. It's a key detail in understanding why David's dynasty is built. And it also is a clear contrast with Saul's reign, where because of Saul's disobedience, what happened to the spirit? It left him. In fact, we see that in verse 14. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And in fact, not only did the spirit of the Lord depart from Saul, but now there's a harmful spirit that's given to him, an evil spirit that's given to him from the Lord, and this spirit is tormenting him. And so what this, again, reminds us of is that David's reign and the greatness of his reign is not established by David's innate human qualities nor by his keen wisdom. David's reign is established by his dependence on the Lord. And in fact, this is a principle that still exists today. You cannot be an effective Christian apart from the Spirit of God. You cannot. That is why God tells His disciples when He's leaving, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to come to you. How is He going to come to you? I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And so we find that this spirit dependence is key. It's vital to our walk as Christians. It is through the ministry of the Spirit that Christ preaches The gospel of His kingdom. We see this in Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah 61 verses 1 through 3. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me, the Spirit has sent Christ to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. The oil of gladness. Instead of mourning, the garment of praise, instead of a faint spirit. That they may be called, what? Oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. This is one of the famous servant songs in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah. And the servant psalms all speak and look forward to the coming Messiah, the servant of the Lord. And the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, was one who had the Spirit of God, what? Upon him. When Jesus begins his ministry, he goes and he's tempted in the wilderness, and he comes back and he goes to his his hometown. He goes back to Nazareth. And he goes to synagogue on Saturday with his family. And Luke tells us that he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom. So here's one thing. Jesus made it a priority to gather with God's people. It was his custom to be in the synagogue on the Sabbath. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up. To read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written. And guess what that place was? What we just read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus then takes the scroll, he rolls it up, gives it back to the attendant, and he sits down. So I've often thought about trying this sometime when I preach. Like, we'll read the scripture and then I'll just say, okay, and I'm going to sit down. And what happened was the eyes of everyone were upon him. And I wonder if the eyes of everyone were like, what are you going to do next? It says that the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Because Jesus was the one who had the Spirit of God on him fully. He was proclaiming that he is Messiah. Messiah. And it is through that dependence on the Spirit that He begins to establish the gospel of the kingdom. Repent and believe. And so we have to recognize that it is through the ministry of the Spirit that Christ preaches the gospel of His kingdom. We also see that it is through the giving of the Spirit that the kingdom breaks forth to the Gentiles and we have the establishment of the church. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus is going to ascend to heaven. And he's like, listen, I'm sending you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and under the uttermost parts of the earth. And this will happen after you receive power, when the Holy Spirit has come, what? Upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And what we find is, if we were to go to Acts chapter 2, the disciples are in the upper room, and it says that it sounds like there was a great rushing upon them, just as the Spirit rushed upon David here. And they came out, and there were tongues of fire above their heads, or as it were tongues of fire above the heads, and they began speaking in languages that they had never learned. And then there's a crowd that grows And sees that there, and Peter then speaks and preaches the gospel. And there are thousands that are saved. What about us today? Do we need the Spirit today? Yes. It's through dependence on the Spirit that we experience new life in Christ our King. The book of Galatians says... Paul writes to the church at Galatia, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So, David's dynasty is established because it is God's choice, not man. It is God's wisdom, not man's. And it is God's giving of the Spirit to David that provides hope, continual, full, and complete hope in a dynasty that will one day see the king of the universe become the king of his people as he comes from David's line. Next week, we'll pick up. I I could keep going, but we'd probably be here for another 15 minutes. And so we're going to be done a little bit early. See? It does happen. It does happen. Um, Next week, we're going to look at, and just just to give you a little little preview. So I say that we'll be done early, and now I'm going to talk a little bit more. But um, I just want you to think about how you would feel if you were David uh, after this event. All right? You're anointed king in Israel. Right, right? You're it. And then Saul comes and says, hey, I need you to work for me. I need you to serve me. Wow. David, David's like, serve me. I'm supposed to serve you. I'm the king. And yet what we see from David is a, a remarkable example of someone who is humble and obedient and patient and we'll talk a little bit more about that next week this this to me is one of the most remarkable things about david's reign is that he doesn't take things into his own hands he leaves them in the hands of god i get getting ahead of myself so we'll talk about that next sunday evening let's pray Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth we find in it. Lord, we thank you for the message that we have received and been given in the Old Testament about the kingdom that you're building. And Father, we thank you for the example we have. Father, may we not be like Israel and insist on our own way. May we rest. In your choice, may we recognize that you see not as man sees, you see the heart. Father, may we, as David sought to be fully dependent upon your spirit, may we seek to be fully dependent upon your spirit as we seek to speak the gospel and to live as citizens of Christ's kingdom. Thank you for your word. Work in our hearts and lives. We pray this in Christ's name, pleading his blood. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us here in person. Thanks for joining us online. Have a great week.